Yo, yo, what's going on, everyone? Pete Forsey, the podcast, coming at you here rather early. April 16th, it's a Tuesday. I think this is the earliest I've ever recorded during the week, with maybe the exception of the Super Bowl. I did that right after on a Monday, Rapid Reactions. And that's kind of why I wanted to do it here on a Tuesday, is because just so much going on. So much has transpired since last Thursday, last time we uh, we got together and talk, talk shop, uh, not only in sports, but just kind of life. There's been a lot going on. It was a, it was a major weekend in sports. Tiger, obviously. Uh, then we've had Russell Wilson, who just signed his extension here uh, early Tuesday morning. I guess it was like 3 a.m. Uh, most people's time, central time where I'm at. And just a whole lot going on. I didn't want to wait and then let everything kind of die down and miss it. So I'm, I'm optimizing the window here. We're going to talk Russ. We're going to talk Ruben Foster. We're going to talk MLB pre-arbitration contracts because another one, Ozzie Albies, signed an extension again and got a lot of heat for it. We're jam-packed. It's episode 14 of the podcast. So obviously on Sunday, the talk on the internet, the talk on all the major networks was from Tiger Woods who won his uh, his first major championship in I believe it's 13 years or since 2008, since his last Masters. Um, that goes to show you just how close I follow this. I don't follow golf all that uh, particularly close as, at all. Uh, I know all the major names, Jordan Spieth, Bubba Watson, Phil, Tiger, obviously. But that's the extent to what I know. I know that it's a major deal that he won because it was a huge comeback trail. But I do find it funny that all these major networks and outlets that don't pay any sort of attention to golf, just come out of the woodworks and start making all these proclamations about the greatest comeback ever and the redemption story. And it's just kind of fascinating that people feel emboldened to make such a claim, yet uh, they don't really even pay attention to the sport outside of those uh, big magnitude of moments such as Tiger on Sunday. But the main thing that I take away from Tiger, because I was sitting there watching it because it was Sunday, it started earlier due to the forecast there in Augusta. They kicked off uh, first thing in the morning, and I was watching it uh, until the end in the afternoon, right before or a little after all the baseball games got started. And the first thing that I thought about when I was just kind of surfing, surfing around the internet and then flipping the channels to the other networks who had you know immediate coverage afterwards is just as much as we love the people that win, the people that consistently stay on top as far as a coverage standpoint. We always talk about Tom Brady because he he he's on a team that wins all the time. And then uh, the Golden State Warriors, because they win all the time, we cover those teams the most because they're relevant and it will drum up discussion whether you like them or not. What we learned on Sunday from Tiger Woods is that we also love to root for failure. We do. Maybe we don't root for very, you know, bad things. We don't root for people to get injured. We don't uh, root for people to, like, lose their lives or anything like that. But what we do root for is we like to see people hit rock bottom so then we can see them build their way back up. People were fascinated by Tiger. Once everything collapsed, once everything hit the floor, people said, okay, now come back. Let's see you do it again. And I think what this tells us about ourselves as a society is that we subconsciously root for people to act in a way 
that will set themselves back. Because what we love to see, aside from winning and staying on the mountaintop, we love to see people who hit a setback come back and do it again. Who had it all or who were uber talented, uber skilled, had a lot of success in their given sport or league, and then come back and do it again. I had an example a few years ago, or not an example, I had a theory that I think is a prime example of this. And that's Johnny Manziel. There was always a part of me, and it's grown by the year. Anytime I learn something new about Johnny Manziel. Johnny Manziel entered the league with some suspicious baggage. He was a big partier, wasn't really a student of the game when it comes to football, wasn't really into the craft. He was more just show and go. I can just show up on Saturdays uh, and do my thing, and I think that will translate to Sundays. I'll say and do whatever I want. And there was a lot of skepticism about it, but there was also people that were optimistic about it just because he was that talented and he was that productive in college. There's a part of me that truly believes Johnny Manziel, who craves attention, he loves to be in the spotlight, as much as he may dismiss it and get irritated by the coverage that was around him, I truly believe he was a guy that loved coverage, whether it was good or bad. Because if you're being talked about, People then are discussing you, and there is a group of people, there's a certain uh, constituency that will find something about you that they like. And then you can reap the benefits, whether it be financial or, you know, just public endorsement and resources and opportunities. There's a part of me that thinks Johnny Manziel purposefully, I'm not going to say buried himself, although he did kind of get close to there. There's a part of me that just... In the era of 30 for 30s, where we glorify redemption stories, where we're very forgiving of a lot of things, there's a part of me that Johnny Manziel, I think he did it on purpose. I really do. Maybe he dug such a hole that he didn't think it would get this deep. But there is a part of me that thinks, man, you know, you can you can reap a lot of rewards for simply just being, you know, a, a moron. You know, ultimately, for being an idiot, there are people out there that will like characteristics about you, find something about you that they think they can utilize to their benefit, and then also you can utilize in a partnership. I I say the 30 for 30 effect because you see stories like Maurice Claret, um, you know, a few are escaping me now, but just all these, you know, even mini docuseries, Josh Gordon was one of them. There was all this stuff that came out once he came back to the league in 2017 for the Browns, highlighting his comeback story, his redemption, and how people had forgiven him, and this is the steps that he took to get back. And then ultimately we find out, eh, he's not all the way back. We love redemption stories. We love comeback stories. And subconsciously, we root for people to demonstrate combative behavior towards success. Because we like to see setbacks because the only thing better than someone staying on top is someone who hits the floor and makes it all the way back. So obviously the big news coming out of the NFL here on Tuesday is Russell Wilson signs reportedly a $140 million contract for four years, $65 million signing bonus, 107 overall in guarantees. That's a report. The finalizations haven't come out, obviously. But if you do the simple math there, that would make Russell Wilson the highest paid quarterback on average annual value ever. That would be $35 million 
surpassing Aaron Rodgers at 33.5. So, big news. And the reason it was big news is because there seemed to be just this this hysteria of people that thought it was actually plausible that he would go to the New York Giants in New York. I know it was pretty much Colin Cowherd who kind of threw this out there. And then there was Adam Schefter who on Sunday said that if the mandate isn't met on April 15th, tax day, then Russell isn't even talking to him the rest of the year. And pretty much giving credence to the fact that it's very possible that if they don't get it done on April 15th, they don't get it done at all. I don't exactly see it that way because there's this little thing called the franchise tag, and Seattle could have put that on them for the next three years. Um, but they reached this extension, and it's it's pretty simple. He's worth it. There's no argument to go the other way. I am so shocked that some of these networks are willing to discuss the even entertain the other side of the equation because it's it's just baffling to me. And that's kind of why I've refrained from talking about it on Twitter. I did I did not talk about it when the mandate um, or the deadline, I should say, of April 15th came out uh, two weeks ago, I believe it was, when it was publicized. I didn't talk about it because I don't want to give credence to this discussion. It's not one. There is no formula worth taking a risk that involves giving up Russell Wilson in exchange for draft picks, for prospective players. The whole reason you acquire draft picks is to get Russell Wilson, players of his caliber. So you would be giving up an elite quarterback, which there was once upon a time, many didn't think he was elite, but I think we are far past that now. I remember a few years ago, I was uh, I was with my friend Pat, and I mentioned to him, we were having a discussion, I said, yeah, Russell Wilson is criminally underrated. And he said, yeah, not really, though. He goes, I've heard that for about three years now with Russell Wilson, and the fact that he's talked about being so underrated makes me think that he's properly rated. And we kind of, you know, laughed about that, and I was like, yeah, no, actually, you're right. You're, you're probably right. So I think we're all on board that he is elite. So when you are elite, you get paid elite money. And paying your guy 35 and a half average annual value, which obviously that's not going to be the cap hit. That's the only thing that matters. Uh, but average annual value of $35 million, that's what you give elite players because they are worth it. What's kind of been the syndrome here lately is the rookie quarterback contract. And it's kind of given this idea, I think, that to at least to like consumers out there, that that's what teams are looking for. No, they're not. What they're looking for is an outstanding quarterback who can give their position the most value. When you have to go the rookie quarterback route, that's just the most prudent way to do business, is to then allocate your resources while that guy is under a cheap contract to maximize your potential for competing. It's not that you voluntarily avoid paying a quarterback high money because you think it's a smarter idea to build a team that way. No, it's not. It's that you were forced into that decision. And then when you get those quarterbacks, if they demonstrate play that is elite, you give them elite money. If they're great, then you give them great money. Good, average, awful, on the way down the line. Once you get to awful, you pretty much try to find someone else. But this just was never a discussion. It never was a discussion. It's why I didn't even want to talk about it. The only reason I am now is just to discuss how absurd it was from the beginning. I understand entertainment value and understand that you never take anything off the table if you truly want to understand how franchises operate because I think that's how the best do it. They consider all options, but 
they also understand that there's some that they consider that is just very, very unlikely to happen. And this was one of them. Russell Wilson is amongst the elite. And the reason that it was probably only a discussion for a little bit is that because it wasn't getting done. And Russell said, hey, I'm not showing up to off-season workouts having to talk about this. So get it done on tax day. And the Seahawks said, hey, Russ, we're, we're getting ready for the draft, man. Like That's two weeks away. Can't we just f- figure that out? And he said, no, I'm not showing up. I'm not talking to the Seattle Times. I'm not talking to John Clayton and having him go on his radio show, talk about this and that. Let's get this done. If, if you say you want me as much as I know that you do, let's go ahead and get it done. And the Seahawks said, oh, all right, fine, let's do it. And maybe the only, you know, impasse that they had was that Russell initially, reportedly, threw out there that he said he wanted his number to increase with the salary cap. And Seattle said, whoa, 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 that's not happening. That's one of our most major benefits as far as flexibility is concerned, is that the day you sign the contract is the highest it will take up percentage-wise of the cap. So at 35, again, this is just average annual value, so it doesn't matter, but Earlier, he was taking up 13% of the cap because his cap hit for 2019 before this contract was 25.2. So that means 13% of the $188 million that is the salary cap. So that'll be different now that the contract is signed. But from the moment he signs that contract, it's only going to go down because the way the salary cap is uh, configured, for those that don't know, it's just all total revenue, which is exactly how it sounds. Ticket sales... You know, luxury box, premium seating, merchandise, parking, concessions, everything that the NFL brings in, the players get a cut of that, 48.5%. That's the total uh, player cost amount. And then you take away benefits, just like, you know, you, me, whoever, you know, whoever, you know, has benefits at a job, you take that away. And then that's the amount for player salaries. Uh, you divide it by 32, you got your salary cap right there, $188 million. So, Russell Wilson, his salary uh, percentage will go down year by year. Uh, the cap will keep going up because revenue, like I said, is just split between the owners and the players. And last time I checked, everything is going up. You got the media rights for everything, Fox Sports, CBS, NBC. Everybody's watching, so the money just keeps going up. These contracts are extended, and it's for more millions and millions of dollars than ever. And a peek behind the curtain as to why you think the NFL's bottom line as far as teams moving around, Raiders going to Vegas, Rams going to L.A., well, it's because of new stadiums. Stadiums bring in the most revenue. You got those luxury box. You got those stadium uh, leasing. Yeah, all that. That's why. That's why the NFL is bottom line. That's why teams move from cities who uh, who won't help them build stadiums. So, Russell Wilson, great quarterback. The reason the deal is good is because one, he's worth it, and two, the moment he signs it, it's only going to go down. Russell Wilson. Glad he's staying in Seattle. It was never a thought. He was never going to New York. He will be a Seahawk forever. I've made no secret at this point that sometimes the media pisses me off. And it certainly did last Friday when I learned that Reuben Foster is only going to get fined game checks for some of his past transgressions, which it wasn't even pinpointed why those game checks were going to be taken away. All, it was a very vague term by the NFL when they released the statement saying for his past incidents in which uh, he didn't act appropriately. But what they did find out is that he did not um, disobey the personal conduct policy of the NFL last November 2018. That, of course, was the story of Tampa Bay where he's at the team hotel getting ready for the game. 
and he allegedly uh, had domestic violence against his then-girlfriend. And the San Francisco 49ers cut him immediately after that. A few days later, the Washington Redskins signed him, and the media was all over D.C. They were all over the Redskins. And it was just the most quintessential, modern-day overreaction of the media. NFL player is accused of domestic violence. Oh my gosh, they signed him? When is the NFL going to take a stance? When are they going to understand it? And look, before we go any further, anyone who thinks that domestic violence is acceptable is obviously just an awful human being, okay? So I certainly understand the severity of of domestic violence, and I do not want to diminish that. But what I do want to bring to light, too, is that accusations are just that, accusations. There's no certainty behind it. And the fact that there was just major neglect on the media's part with this situation, yeah, Reuben Foster doesn't really have a great track record. You know, We all know the old saying, where there's smoke, there's fire. Well, guess what? There, there probably was a little smoke because... Ruben hasn't exactly acted accordingly to the rules of the NFL. He he had his guns over in California and didn't bother to check the uh, the gun laws there, so he got in trouble for that. He smoked pot, which whatever your thoughts are on pot in the NFL, uh, they're yours, but the fact is that there are rules. You can't use it. Ruben did that, and then he had the first uh, accusation against the same girl for the same thing, domestic violence. But what's imperative in this situation is that that girl said under oath that she lied about it. And not only did she lie about it then, she also lied about it with a different guy. She accused him of of domestic violence and then, then recanted the story. And now she's saying it happened again. And she, uh, down here in Tampa Bay in 2018, she's saying this one was for real. And now the NFL is saying we didn't find anything about it. It's just a situation where you have to take a clear-eyed view with this. Two things can be true. Yeah, if I were the San Francisco 49ers, I would have cut him too. Why? Because he wasn't smart enough to understand that he shouldn't even be in company with this woman. Hey, Ruben, we've given you plenty of second and third chances here. Or we've given you one second and third chance. But you clearly just aren't very good in judgment. You don't know when you can carry your guns. You don't know that you can't smoke pot. And now you're keeping company with people that are derailing your career. See ya. Yeah, you're untrustworthy. But you know what? It wasn't proven to have hit hit this girl. The girl recanted the story. And now we're finding a second time that she might have been lying. I think there needs to be major apologies to Ruben Foster. But unfortunately, no one in the media is held to that standard. There's no ramifications for that. And that's just the society we live in now. We're reactive, we're emotional, and we're always, as media members that cover the NFL, as a society as whole, we're always looking to take down the big bad NFL. Anti-establishment. Fight for change. Screw the corporate empire that is the National Football League. Yeah, well, you know what? This time they got it right. This time they slowed down, they completed an investigation, and they found out that someone was once again, for the second time, wrongly accused of domestic violence. Because the criminal was the woman, and now we know, really, who messed up. So the second extension 
that is all the talk as far as baseball is concerned is Ozzie Albies. Ozzie Albies signed a seven-year, $35 million contract. This was a guy that was pre-arbitration eligible, and he just got ripped apart. At least his agent did. He got ripped apart for taking a security, a financial security in that $35 million, which of course is just life-changing money to anyone, but a pittance compared to what he could potentially earn just a few years down the road. So a lot of backlash on Albie's camp and what they chose to do here. And, you know, I'm of the company that I don't think it was as bad as what a lot of people think just because I don't think Albie's is an elite talent necessarily. I think he could be very good, and I think he should have waited, but I in the past have uh, – reprimanded guys like Blake Snell, uh, Aaron Noah for doing the same thing because I think they're elite talents. Eloy Jimenez was another one. I think they're elite talents and I think they need to wait and let things play out and go to arbitration because arbitration is swinging back into the player's favor. It's not what it once used to be where it was strictly um, favorable to the owners and the teams. I think people can win a lot of money in arbitration and it's the best source for those that are uh, are in an company of the elite in the players regards so I was disappointed to see that by Albies but you know you know I I don't totally fault him for doing that he didn't have a huge signing bonus when he came out of uh, Latin America and his agent was probably pressing him to do so because he was a a a small-time agent this wasn't a big uh you know Scott Boris type situation Jeff Passan of ESPN ESPN ESPN.com excuse me he astutely pointed that out he said you know a lot of big factors in this are the agents because they don't want to lose the guy down the road to a bigger uh to a bigger client so or to a bigger agency I should say and that's a key thing among many variables in these situations but the thing that I want to get to as far as contracts and how free agency is going to re-enter the picture because that's all that's happening now with these contracts these pre-arbitration contracts or these extensions that are happening, whether it be Mike Trout, is that free agency is basically no more. And free agency is one of the biggest appeals, one of the things that always had going for a Major League Baseball, because unlike other sports, fit is really not a thing. Sure, sure, you need positional fit, but the thing about baseball is that your right fielder can play right field from any team. You know, it's not like football where linebacker is a little bit different depending on schematics. Or, you know, positionally in the NBA... Uh, you already have a great point guard, so you don't need another one uh, if that's all they can do. So, Major League Baseball, you can find a way to get creative with that, and that's where free agency enters the the limelight. It's way different from other sports. So, how does free agency become a thing again? To me, it's pretty simple. The players got to train differently. And in the age of modern medicine and new training philosophies and everything, from what I can glean, and this is just over the years, paying attention to various things, being exposed to different uh, atmospheres. I've had the privilege of going through various clubhouses, locker rooms, and overseeing a few things, you know, not a whole lot, but just what I can observe from over the years. And if you haven't been able to tell, this is pretty much all I do. I don't have hobbies. I just care about this stupid crap. What I've learned is that we give far too much credit to players and their training. We really do. I think there seems to be this idea that, oh, everybody has the same resources. Everybody has the same uh, trainers that basically birdwash them the entire time during workouts. They have the same dietitians. Yeah, I mean, everything's equal. And it's just not true. 
not only do some people make less money to where they can't afford some of the same things, but it's also a lot more on them. It's a lot more on them on scheduling the type of training that they want, understanding the training that they need, and then doing it. And doing it in a dedicated and diligent way. And the one thing about baseball players that I think is somewhat known, but maybe not commonly, is that they're nocturnal. They don't, they go home after the games, they eat dinner, which after the games, most of them are at seven o'clock, so it's about 11 or midnight. And then they stay up for three hours, and then they probably sleep until 11 or noon, and they get, get ready for their day. So they're on a completely different schedule. And some of the bad habits that they do, stay up and watch TV, which chemically messes up their brain and messes up their sleep patterns. And then, you know, they're not as energized. They're not as refreshed. Their energy levels are different for the game. And that's just one example. And then the way they train, which oftentimes is outdated, you know, all these Olympic lifts, things that aren't conducive to baseball. Baseball is completely about functional strength. It's about flexibility. It's about long limbs, loose body. Some guys don't train properly conducive to their sport, even in the major leagues. Like, I'm willing to go that far with some people. Some of them totally get it. Mike Trout, that's a baseball player right there. But even Bryce Harper, I think, and he's definitely not of the worst offenders, but even at one point, I think it was 2015, he bulked up way too much. He was way too big, and I think he realized, yeah, gosh, I don't need to be carrying all this muscle. It's not really conducive to to me. I'll pull a hamstring. You know, I'll have sore backs. It just it's it's not good for my arm. I need to be able to throw from right field every day. And then pitchers, you can look at plenty. I mean, Randy Choate was one of them for the Cardinals. I mean, that guy wasn't in shape. He got away with it for a little bit because all he did was have to throw to one batter. But he admittedly said that he used to drink diet Pepsi and donuts every day. Like that stuff isn't conducive. It's not suitable for what you want to do. You're a professional athlete. I just got on Brett Cecil the other day for being 25 pounds overweight. But just to extend that point, sometimes some guys just think losing weight is the solution when really it's not. It's dependent on your body. It's dependent on your position. It's dependent on what you're asking your body to do. So how is free agency going to come back the other way? Well, athletes are going to have to train differently. They're going to have to understand that as you get into your mid-30s, you got to ask your body to recover a certain way. You got to give more dedication to it. Or there's another solution. And this is one that I think should be explored because really all it is is a supplement or a alternative to the process. And that is having a less stringent PED list, a banned substance list. And some of you may be saying, well, Forcey, you're the one who talked about PED users, not the, you know, they shouldn't be in the Hall of Fame. It's like, well, no, actually, I didn't say that. What I said was steroid users should have been in the Hall of Fame. There's a big difference. Unfortunately, we're under this catch-all phrase of PEDs. So anytime someone gets suspended, it's, oh, he used steroids. Yeah, well, no, he didn't. Some of them used steroids. Starting the Marte used steroids. But some guys didn't use it. PEDs is just a huge umbrella of a phrase to, uh, to give us the all-encompassing list that is MLB's banned substance list. And there are some things that should be on there. Steroids should be on there. They're too potent. They're way too potent. The side effects that come with it are very, uh, they're very serious. So to encourage people to use that, to encourage athletes to use that, I don't think is a good thing. So when you got Dianabol, Stanazol, Andro, uh, Methanol, or yeah, Met, 
whatever A-Rod used. I'm trying to remember what he used. But there are some steroids that just, you know, obviously they should be on the ban list. But it's the other stuff. I'm a fence sitter on HGH. HGH, I don't, I think they need to revisit it because what it's shown is recovery tactics. It, I haven't seen anything to believe that HGH actually enhances your performance. So I think that's one to revisit. But there are some things like like the creams, the lozenges, the the even some amphetamines, peptides, testosterone boosters. Like some of those should be permitted. Like those are fine recovery tactics. Those are fine uh, healthy enhancers to really just elevate players to what they want to be, which is the best. You know, baseball is a grueling schedule, contrary to popular belief. The flights, the the different times that you play every day. Sometimes you play at 7, wake up the next day, you play at 11. There was a baseball game in Boston the other day. started at 11 a.m., their time. Like, it's a grueling schedule. You play every day. So there's a couple things that have to happen with free agency. One, players are going to have to train differently, give a whole lot of attention to detail, understand that they need to train what they're asking their bodies to do. And then two, either alternatively or also in addition, MLB should revisit their PED list. They need to revisit it because there are some things on there that frankly should be um, permitted. And then there's some things that obviously should not. So that's what I think about free agency. I think it will swing back uh, the other way because I think people are going to realize or players are going to realize they're leaving money on the table. But right now it's definitely broken and it's only getting exacerbated by guys taking money before they get to arbitration. One thing that was said by Joe Girardi, former manager of the New York Yankees, he said this shortly after that he was fired by the Yankees after the 2017 season. And Joe, for those who don't know him or don't follow baseball that uh, closely, is a very uh, he was very acerbic, not very engaging with the media, he, a lot like Belichick in a lot of regards as far as uh, how he used to approach those conversations with the media. Very tight-lipped, always worried about his team. And one thing that he talked about after there was a sit-down because this firing by the Yankees was a bit of a surprise. Not many people saw it coming with uh, Joe Girardi being let go. And there was a sit-down. He was talking to, I believe it was ESPN.com, or no, it was The Athletic with Kenny Rosenthal. And Rosenthal asked him, what's one thing that, you know, you just want to tell the audience? And Joe Girardi said this. He said, one thing that's always irritated me is that some people buy buy into the theory that perception is reality. He goes, that irritates me. He goes, reality is reality. And that always resonated with me and probably was the driving force behind me recording this podcast here on Tuesday is that it's so true. Buying into the theory that perception is reality is laziness on the consumer. That's us willing to believe, take at face value exactly what's going across our phones, what's going across our televisions, and just dismissing the fact, glossing over the fact that all that is driven, all that is driven by what will grab your attention, what will get the viewership, what will get the ratings. It's important to always dig deep beneath the surface. Look at the facts. Look at who's credible. Look at who's doing the talking, who's delivering the information to you. And Reuben Foster, I think that was imperative, a little bit with Russell Wilson. And that's exactly why I wanted to bring you this podcast here on Tuesday, April 16th. And that's what we're going to conclude with here now. I may see you later next week. I don't know. In the meantime, I hope that you will uh, hit me up on social media at Pete4C, Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram, everything. 
slide up in those DMs. Let me know what you think. Let me know what you're liking. Have a great rest of your week. I'll see you when I see you.